0: Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. I've had this conversation circled on my calendar for a while. We get to talk with Lori Garrett, and this is going to be special, and I'm really looking forward to it. Before we jump in to the conversation with Lori Garrett, Just want to invite everyone to come and check out the website for Explore the Space podcast, www.explorethespaceshow.com. We're really proud of everything that we've been able to put together over the last several years. The whole archive of the show is there. Our four pillars of learning, how we categorize those episodes, they're all there. It's got everything that you need to really immerse yourself in the extraordinary conversations with truly remarkable people doing wonderful things. It's all archived there for you. As far as finding me on social media, I'm very active on Twitter, at ETS Show. Feel free to email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. You can also subscribe to the show on any platform that you like. And whenever you leave a rating or a review, it really helps the show out. So really appreciate if you can take the time to do that. And definitely click subscribe. We've got lots of content coming. We're really making an effort to keep it coming on a regular basis. So if you subscribe, you will not miss out on anything. And if you want a reason to subscribe, I think this upcoming conversation is going to be one of those reasons. Lori Garrett is a Pulitzer Prize winning author. And it's not every day that we get to have conversations with people who've won a Pulitzer Prize. Her Pulitzer was in 1996 for a series of works that she did chronicling the Ebola virus. She has really established herself as the person to go to, to learn about any sort of public health crisis Anything that threatens public health on a global level, whether it's HIV, whether it's climate change, whether it's infectious disease, whether it's Ebola, it's, it's really wonderful to see one person be so steeped in all of these different things. So, so many people can go to her for, as a resource, but that's actually not why she's here. She recently wrote an article that was published in the British Medical Journal, and the article was titled, The Trouble with Girls. And it's a really provocative title for a really provocative article. And the article itself is a deep dive into the disadvantages that women who practice in the medical professions, medical practitioners and researchers, the disadvantages that they face simply based on their gender. I've read this article many times. Every time I read it, something else feels like a gut punch. It's, it's a tough read. It's an important read. We are really excited to have Lori Garrett, who wrote this article, join us. Lori, thank you so much for taking the time.
1: What a lovely introduction. Thank you, Mark.
0: I want to start from a place of, with all of the things that you do, all of the stuff that you write about, and the list goes on and on, you're really good at all of it as well. What triggered you? You could, you could deep dive on Ebola right now if you wanted to. The British Medical Journal would ask you to write on any number of topics you chose this one, and I would i would imagine that this article detonated like a bomb. What triggered you? What prompted you to sit down and write this extraordinary essay?
1: Well, um, two, almost three years ago, uh, a Stanford University physician researcher named Michelle Berry tried to pull together a group of women to look at why uh, – Uh, there were so few women in key leadership positions in global health. And what, what could possibly explain it when demographically females dominate public health and global health, and yet men consistently earn far more and end up in positions of power and leadership far more likely to do so than females. So she put together a meeting that was the first effort to look at this, it took place at Stanford University in 2017. And uh, nobody expected what happened because so many people wanted to come to that meeting that she had to turn away hundreds of people, just didn't have the resources for a crowd of several thousand. Uh, and the response in the meeting was overwhelming. Um, there was a kind of collective realization wow, we've we haven't really thought about it much, but there's a lot going on here and it doesn't seem right. Um, The second gathering took place at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in November of 2018. And once again, there was this kind of collective realization by mostly women. A few men were there um, of, of just how unfair, unjust the situation seems to be. But I was disturbed because in both meetings, I felt that the conversation just kept steering around to the kind of comfort zone that women gravitate to. And to all my female listeners to this, excuse me if you think I sound biased on this, but it's true. Women are very comfortable going to the, oh, what about me place? In other words, if things aren't fair, there must be something me, I am doing wrong. And maybe I need to be more aggressive. Maybe I need to better package myself uh, to uh, my superiors. Maybe I need to do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, my experience with discrimination in any form, whether it's racial discrimination, gender, age, whatever it may be, the person at the raw end of the stick is rarely the reason that that discrimination exists. And... It's not their fault, and it's not something that they can easily repair on their own. Um, And I'm not a big fan of individualistic solutions because they so often end up being a solution for one at the expense of many below her. So I started to really dig on the numbers and try to parse out what's actually going on here. Why would you have a field like nursing? For God's sake, nursing is so female and has been ever since Florence Nightingale. And yet, male nurses consistently earn far more than female nurses. Why should that be? Um, And then as you get into the fields of scientific research, where women are starting to be uh, very dominant in numbers, certain fields of biology, for example, or psychology. Um, And here again, you see that they may be dominant as far as the number of people in the field, but they're not dominant, either in terms of chairing departments or having leadership roles or in income. So I decided to break down the steps that a person has to take to achieve success in medicine or uh, clinical research or basic biological research or public health. And the same steps are in all these fields. It's number one, you have to get into uh, an undergraduate major that's appropriate and succeed in that major. Um, Then number two, you apply to your next tier of training, whether that's to go to medical school or to go to grad school in biology, whatever it may be. Um, And you must succeed at that stage and get recognition at that stage. And along the way, you, you want to do publication. You want to publish in the major journals like Nature, Science, New England Journal of Medicine, The Lancet, and so on. And it's very important that when you do publish research, Um, your role in that research gets appropriately recognized. So if you were the lead researcher, you should be the primary name on the paper. If it was your laboratory that sponsored all the work, then you should be the final name in the list of authors. And then as you would march up the steps, the next comes, how do you advance within your chosen field? So if you're in academia, do you get tenure? Do you end up having a permanent position with good salary equal to the your male peer salaries? Um, if you go into medicine, do, how likely is it a woman chairs a department in medicine versus a man? Um, do you see women advancing in say surgery as quickly as men? Um, and and then ultimately uh, the final step is you know are you invited to give the major speeches the major talks that become The high-prestige, high-profile demonstrations of your expertise draw attention to your work and really put you in a position of um, intellectual leadership, if not actual responsible leadership for your given niche in whatever category it is you're pursuing. What you could see is if you break it down that way, Every single step, starting at the undergraduate level, has demonstrable gender bias.
0: What you did with this article, there's, there's three pieces to it that I thought were the work of real genius, the work of someone that has, wins Pulitzer Prizes. One of them is that you laid out a ladder that everyone can identify with. That pathway that you just described there's no counter argument to that pathway. We all do it. That's the way it goes. That's the work that you do to move in any of these professions. So the infrastructure is 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 understood, and that was a really really smart approach. The, the The other part of this is it's just the writing itself. It's just the facts, and then the facts, and then the facts. It doesn't need editorial comment, right? It's Ali versus Lister when he doesn't throw that last punch. Because you don't need to. It stands on its own. It is what it is. And every time you read a segment, you just sort of stop and you go, you've got to be kidding. Is this this can't be right. And then the last part is your data points. Just like the way, you, the way you started this, right? That conference in 2016, less than three years ago, the data points that you surface, they are so recent. It just makes it that much more raw and, and just painful to read it. Um, but also, like in a way, motivating to say, this is not in our past. This is in our now. I sense that that was all really intentional. Is that the case?
1: Oh, yeah. I, I didn't see any point in digging uh, a lot. Historically, though, I did open with something that I had only recently at the time discovered, which is that the person who actually discovered climate change was not any of the men whose names are commonly um Bantied about as getting credit for being the first to um, get the concept of a greenhouse gas emissions and impact on planet Earth. But rather was a woman who uh, you know wrote her paper for publication in 1851 and the presented it to the uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science. And uh, they said, well, we accept the paper, but no woman is allowed to present. And so she had to sit in the back of the room while a man read her paper. And then they refused to publish it in the official program of the AAAS on the grounds that they don't publish the work of women. And so she had it separately published by no less than Frederick Douglass, <laughs> the great abolitionist leader. Right. Um, and she had herself, this is Ms. Foote, um, had herself been uh, the founder of the first women's conference uh, that we know of ever in human history, the first really strong political women's conference, which took place in Seneca Falls, New York in 1848. She co-organized it with Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So she was a huge pathbreaker. And the fact that we, you know, nobody ever heard of her, that was my one bit of history at the top. But yes, the, the emphasis was on what... What is the status of the situation right here, right now? And what stunned me as I was doing digging and I would call up agencies like the National Institutes of Health or the Wellcome Trust Foundation in, in the UK and ask for data points, you know, exactly what's the success rate of a female name as the primary applicant for a grant versus a male name versus a gender ambiguous name. And uh, what are the likelihoods that a female researcher applying for a grant to the National Science Foundation or Wellcome Trust um, actually succeeds in not only getting the grant approved, but as you know, approval is only step one. Then it has to actually be funded and get funded at the level you have indicated is essential to be able to actually produce the research that you're seeking. Um, And it, some institutions were relatively uh, compliant and easy to work with. The Welcome Trust, in particular, just unloaded data on me. You know, just showered me with numbers. Um, as did the NSF, the NIH. Quite a different story.
0: Did you For get the real, sense that they were kind of caught with? Uh oh, she's calling the question. This might not. This might not go well. Did you get a sense of some reticence on that account?
1: What I got was initially a lot of hostility. You know, Hmm. why don't you just look online? Things are published, you know. We have to publish our data to Congress. I'd say, look, I've been through that data. That doesn't answer the questions I'm looking at. And, you know, it, it took a long time to get anybody to really, you know, help me parse it out. And even then, I would say that there's a lot unsatisfactory with the way the NIH keeps such data. And, um, you know, there, there's, there are things that just don't make sense in a lot of NIH data.
0: As you pulled the article together and finished it, I'm just sort of curious, you've written so many articles, books, publications of all types. When you're done and you're getting ready to submit, I used to be a sports writer. So in a small way, I sort of remember what it feels like to submit something for publication. There's a real rush that comes with that. Where did this one rank for you in terms of, this is going to have an impact? Was it, yeah uh, eh, nothing's going to happen, or, you know what, I've done something big here, this is going to be a monster. Where would it land on that spectrum as you were getting ready to submit for publication?
1: To be honest, the British Medical Journal wanted it for what is usually considered their joke, goof-off annual issue the Christmas issue.
0: The one that, that this year had the, the randomized controlled trial of jumping out of a plane with or without a parachute.
1: Right. <laughs> okay. and, and, and so, you know, I, I really actually wasn't particularly confident anybody would read it
0: wow. because,
1: uh, it was that it was the jokester issue. Um, you know, they did say that it was because, because it was that issue I could write on any topic I chose. Um, and I initially came in with a piece that was about another thousand words longer. And we did a lot of back and forth hassle about how far I could push the envelope on the length. Uh, so frankly, once it was done, I just felt relief like, gosh, that's over. Okay. Now move to the next project. And uh, then when it was really on publication day, It just blew up on on Twitter and social media. It was unbelievable, the reaction. And I I had to step back and reread it myself and try to have novice eyes like I wasn't jaded by all the data to appreciate why it had exploded that way.
0: So I I emailed you for the first time that night because I saw it too and it flashed across my Twitter account. I don't remember how many times I read it that day. I was flattened by it. Um, for a lot of reasons, the data being one of them, the other one just being, it's just one of those documents. It's really short. You know, you said you cut a thousand words, you know, when the the best authors, right, they, they've, they've mastered the art of brevity so that every word is a hammer. And that's what this article was like for me, that there's nothing wasted. There's nothing fluffy. There's nothing editorializing except for the last sentence. Everything is there for a purpose and helps deliver the punch. Um, it, it, it was a boulder in a still lake, for sure.
1: <laughs> well, I'll tell you, the other thing that was um, important to me in, in the way I organized it was to try and also tease out, why is all this happening?
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, you know, when I was in grad school, which is, you know, way back in the ancient days, um, I was a grad student in immunology at Berkeley and did research at Stanford. And I worked in one of the most important labs at the time, the Herzenberg lab at Stanford. And and I remember vividly the day that one of the uh, scientists in the department, uh, a woman named Claudia Henry, who I just had acres and acres of respect for as a scientist. She was brilliant immunologist, um, sat down with a group of the female grad students, and said, look, I I just want you to know that you have a special set of obstacles ahead of you, and here's some data I've gotten out of the NIH, and I think you should see this. And it showed very clearly that female applicants for grants were, were getting shafted. And we had a long conversation about how unlikely it was that any of us would ever have a fully funded laboratory in our entire lives. And I remember going to a very important scientific meeting for immunologists out in the West Coast. It's the biggest meeting every year, it's at Asilomar. And everybody just calls it the Asilomar meeting. And I was still in grad school watching how female scientists presented their work versus how male scientists did. And I realized that the female method of trying to stay solid in her field is to do an intensely data-driven talk and draw no particular sweeping conclusions at the end. So she's over-researched the topic. She has more data than she needs. She killed far more mice in this study than she needed to, etc., And now she's going to just present numbers, 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 and then at the end say some modest sentence like, this would seem to validate prior studies in the area, or something dumb like that. Whereas men were constantly getting up, and with a very modest, you know, one experiment, then drawing these spectacular conclusions about what the implications were for the entire functioning of, you know, the thymus under. Uh, influenza pressure or some such thing. And uh, and I realized that women weren't allowed to have sweeping ideas. They weren't allowed to be generating large hypotheses or big, big theories about how something worked. And I saw the same was true in, uh, in medicine and in public health. And it had a lot to do with my choice to leave grad school and go into science writing. Because I felt like there, I had more opportunity to accomplish something that, rather than spend my whole life fighting just to get a grant to do the next experiment.
0: So I wondered yeah. about that when I was learning more about your background and I saw the places that you'd been able to study and the work that you were doing clearly the, the, the talent is there, the smarts are there. And I wondered why you stepped away and there's all this, you know, there, everyone has their own story and their own journey, but how much would you say your own personal journey informed your desire to write this? And perhaps did it, in what ways did it impact the piece itself?
1: Well, you know, what's interesting is I would say it's it had more to do with why I was unsatisfied with, the two meetings that I described at Stanford and the London school, because I felt like uh, people were trying to talk about the gender differential as if it was something they could quickly and easily solve just by either, you know, me tooing, you know, hashtag me too all over the place, or um, uh, just as I said before, fix something in themselves to adapt yeah. and, and succeed. And and I felt like, look, I've seen these numbers before. I've been there. This was a path I tried to follow. And so that's why that was the approach I took in the article. And the other thing that I think is important and was very important to me in, in trying to pull it all together to write the piece is Um, that it's essential to try and understand why it's happening. You know, I think back in my, when I was in grad school, the why was pretty blatant sexism. I mean, you still had a time then when uh, people would openly say to high school students, boys are good at physics, boys are good at math, girls are better at things, you know, like describing flowers or I like the classic is the boy is the architect, the girl's the interior decorator.
0: Mm, yeah. um,
1: and if you take that and apply it across science and medicine, you know, you come to the girl is going to be great as a family practitioner and spending a lot of time with those families working through their health problems. But the boy is going to be the chief of surgery. And uh, so I, I was trying to figure out, Why, since we're many years past that kind of awful blatant sexism, why would we still be at a a place where uh, there's some implication that women are inferior in some way? And it was very, very obvious as I worked more and more and more with the data and talked to the people in these various institutions whose job it was to try and address the, the gender bias and racial bias um, usually the same offices handled both. And it was very clear it was all about pregnancy. Men don't hmm. get pregnant.
0: Yeah,
1: Men don't take a year out of their life per child. And the very years when you most need to be kicking butt in your career in order to establish yourself, meaning from like age 25 to 40, are also the pregnancy years. the reproductive years and and in the case of scientists and physicians there's a tendency to marry late because the earlier studies are so difficult and time consuming and so relationships kind of get put off and so people are are getting married in their late 20s having first child often at age 30 and what that means is that you know that t- exact number years, age thirty to thirty-five. Those are the years when the guys you just see the fork in the road, and they just take off, boom, like rockets into the moon. Right?
0: That was me. See- I mean, I, right? That's when I'm working my hardest. That's when I'm doing doing all the things that I wanted to do. I, of of course, that 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 follows.
1: And that's exactly when the women are the opposite, because. They're having children, yeah. they're, more, they're more likely than men, even now, even with the so-called enlightened male of today, they're, they're more likely to try and take time to be at the Little League baseball game, to make it to the PTA meetings, to take the kid with a fever to the pediatrician, and so on and so forth. And, and frankly, to cook the special meal that little Susie will only eat. You know? <laughs> yeah. The only one she'll eat. That's right. Um, and, uh, you know, when you pull it all together, you yeah. realize that um, society is saying to women, you have a choice. Have a family or have a superstar career, but you can't have both. Because we're going to penalize you for failing to reach certain goalposts by age 30, by age 35, by age 40, by age 45. And we're not gonna let you say, but my 12 year old had a fever or my five year old, you know, fell down the stairs at school or my six year old was giving his, was in the spelling bee finals. I mean, these are just not acceptable excuses. And I think, you know, in the end, I'm saying society has to choose. And any society that chooses that children don't matter is not a long-lived society or a valuable one.
0: Right. I think it's informative as I was listening to you speak just now, It is and was, your choice of tense. You used the word happening. You didn't use the word happened, right? You kept us in the present tense, which is important because that is exactly the point of this article. These things haven't happened and then stopped. The reason may have changed somewhat, but it is ongoing and it remains a huge problem. We're just surfacing it right now. We, You and women like you who are able to write about this and articulate it and have experienced it and can give it voice are are putting a spotlight on it. But it is happening. And I think that that is – that's the biggest takeaway from the article. And like that last sentence that you say, right? It's it's interesting your, the way you described how women would present in these conferences. Your article is fact, 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 fact. Editorial comment at the end, but it makes that editorial comment. It's like it's like Thor's hammer. I mean, it's just we're not good at this. We need to get better. And, and I think that that approach is really really impactful and really really smart because it it just makes it. There's there's no wiggle room. There's no space. It's we're, we're, in the, we're in the hurt locker on this one, and well, we got to get out of it.
1: Well, Mark, before you go too far down that path, I, I want to say one, one thing. There are, there are people I have learned from who have taken the same kind of task uh, on hand but through a racial perspective, and I've learned greatly from them. Because there are many things about racial bigotry that the average white person just doesn't get, doesn't see it, doesn't understand it. And I think one of the things that's happening right now on the women's side is that men are seeing what constitutes a hashtag me too moment. And they're all kind of digging deep and going, gee whiz, you know, I did that when I was 17 or I said things like that to my girlfriends when I was 24 Well, here we are in a moment when the governor of Virginia is about to pay a huge price for some stupid, idiotic, racist thing he did while he was in medical school, wearing blackface like a minstrel show. And I think I've learned a lot from my colleagues who are African American, Latino, Asian American, watching and learning from them what constitutes a kind of external bigotry that may not it's not the obvious thing where somebody used the n-word but rather somebody just turned their head a certain way and ignored you for a moment somebody under interrupted you as you were speaking undervaluing the content all kinds of things that are about gaining sensitization and understanding what a kind of assumed superiority looks like the assumption that as a white kid growing up in America you're going to have a shot at college and then a shot at whatever you want to do after college and you never think about unless of course i go to jail or you never think about unless of course you know my mother dies of an overdose or this happens or that happens that could greatly impede or just simply that the brutality of every single day hearing Um, racist comments drives me to distraction and and makes me so upset i can't complete my goal and this was one of the reasons that i really picked up on the data which i underscore in the article about what are the long-term impacts on women who uh, are victims of uh, sexual abuse um while they are professionals whether it's as a physician or rising in a department, in an academic setting, what have you, and you see that the woman pays the price, and she pays the price not just with the initial humiliation and dignity, you know, nightmare. But with the ongoing whisper campaigns and gossip, and all the people who doubt that, you know, well, you know, she's very sensitive. I doubt that he was really that bad. And I think she probably exaggerates, or, you know, they were really having an affair, and now she's getting back at him, and all the kinds of things that would get said. And you could see that many women ended up abandoning the institution they were working in, abandoning the whole career trajectory they were on having been victimized now they can't stay at their home base they have to move on they have to find a new route um and i think again that echoes with how racism affects an individual who's just beaten down over and over and over again and you reach a point where you explode you get angry you lash out at your the people around you that are so callous and insensitive and it blows back who gets, who suffers? You do not, not the person victimizing you, not the racist, but the person that you suffer, you bear that burden. And uh, I so I thought it was important to get at least a hint of that um, regarding what sexual harassment means to women.
0: And I think that you've done that so well and been able to, build such a such a deep layered essay here and it does capture so much of that stuff that's why for me when i've read it and i've read it several times now i think i've read it 6 or 7 times something catches me totally differently than it did the time before and it resonates a little bit differently as well and i have a different response because of whether it's something that happened to me at work or just something pops out a little bit differently what sort of responses have you gotten? I, I know that the article, you know, it went viral. It's it sort of stayed. It stayed up longer than most things, sort of stay up once they surface. I would imagine you got a tremendous amount of response from readers. Walk us through the responses that you got, stuff that you expected, maybe things that you didn't expect, and was there pushback? Well,
1: first of all, the only negative I got was from, uh, a female researcher whose work I cited and, um, she disputed the nature of the citation. So there's actually a published citation apologia in BM, in the British medical journal, um, in a couple issues later. And I think she, I think she was nitpicking, but let's leave it at that. Otherwise, all the response was either, you know, a kind of gratitude that this the article had been done, or uh, a lot of shock, a lot of, oh my gosh, I didn't realize it was like this, I didn't see my, I thought my problem, I was the only one going through this, I didn't see it in the big picture, oh my god, goodness, and then some heart-wrenching uh, first-person accounts posted often publicly on Twitter saying, you know, I went through exactly what you said about this, you know, I was sexually harassed here, or I was denied tenure three years in a row because of you know this constellation of factors you're talking about and uh, a lot of women posted um, not just women men too posted uh, pictures citing my article but pictures they took at conferences of all-male panels uh, where the irony was deepest such as a panel on women in mathematics and all the speakers are men or women in global health. And there's, uh, only, only men. And one in particular kept getting sent to me by people who obviously had been in the audience. And it was a world Congress, uh, I forget the exact name of the organization, but a world Congress of OBGYN and the opening plenary had something like 14 speakers and they were all men.
0: <laughs> that's a, that's a manual.
1: A mantle.
0: And that that word has made its way to the Oxford Dictionary, right?
1: It has indeed. Yeah, I think uh, mantles are inexcusable, and I do see more and more frequently now uh, people challenging them. I mean, just for example, I was just sent an email by a colleague citing an upcoming meeting taking place at the council on foreign relations. And she was challenging that the meeting had no female speakers. Uh, I'm not sure that she or most the people that send me things like that would have actually challenged the authority even five years ago. And that's good news. I think, and I see mantles challenged on, on social media. Uh, But also I'm getting more and more information indicating that this is happening in the planning meetings, that more frequently uh, conferences are being denounced for not even having women engaged in the planning of the conference or in selecting the papers to be presented. And upcoming uh, in a couple of weeks is going to be a special issue of The Lancet dedicated to looking at uh, gender bias in publication. And I'm not sure that would have been, Lancet would have given over a whole issue to that topic five years ago. I don't think so.
0: So based on your perception of five years ago and these, these things that are happening now, do you feel like the tempo of change is correct? Do you feel like the voltage needs to be increased? Do you feel like we're, we're on the path? Are the right people writing, talking, expressing themselves? Do we need it to happen faster? Do we need to have the tempo different in any way?
1: Well, I think one of the things that's interesting to look at right now across the landscape, all over the world, is that you're seeing more and more women getting elected to power, elected to public office. And they're not the Margaret Thatchers, you know, the kind of she played in the boys' club fought her way up, took the conservative line, ends up in power. But rather, particularly among the younger women, they're they're women first. And they're getting elected to Congress or to Parliament or to the Senate or whatever the diet, whatever it is, whatever country they're in. And I think that's, that's incredibly exciting. I don't know how long I'll have to be how old I'll have to be before we have a female president of the United States? Uh, that's a that's a huge frustration, and I don't know how long it's going to take before we really see female representation on the boards of directors of all the major Fortune 500 corporations and in CEO slots. It seems like every year we hear about a woman becoming a CEO of a major corporation, but then just another one. Uh, is resigning and is replaced with a man, so the net number of women in power never seems to change. Um, you know, these things are obviously kind of metaphorically overused, but it is the glass ceiling effect, and that is one end of the perspective. But I think, you know, the problem and the challenge consistently in anything to do with civil rights, whether it's, uh, you know, gender or race or what have you that uh, homophobia, um, is that you get, uh, you get solutions for the uh, most entitled first. So the wealthiest or the best educated see solutions and balance for them. But Getting it to filter down is hard, and that's because it shouldn't be a filter down. It should be a shoot and push up, and it has to be that change really is coming from the grassroots and uh, really affects everybody, regardless of their age, their wealth, their where they live, uh, and so on. And I think that's consistently. Been uh, a challenge for uh, the women's movement of any kind, whatever you want to call it, and and gender equity. Uh, and it, we'll see. It doesn't take long before things break up. I mean, look at this year's women's marches. Uh, uh, you know, in January 2017, the women's march on Washington was massive. I think it broke all records for the history of marches on Washington. Yeah. Uh, And there were parallel massive uh, uh, marches in every major city in America and even little tiny towns all across the United States and, frankly, many places all over the world. You go two years down the road and it's all splintered and you've got infighting and you have different groups meeting in different places and it's much smaller. It's all kind of footnotes. And... uh, You know, the challenge on all of these things, anything that you're trying to sustain progress over time and get there before you all start falling apart.
0: (laughs) I think the hope is that an article like this, because it's able to get to people at the grassroots level, right, it goes viral on Twitter and on social media. It's hitting individual after individual, but it's that ripple effect that goes so quickly hopefully it, it does stimulate that effect. And it's not just being read by women, it's being read by men as well. And it's having an impact. I certainly can't speak for, I can only speak for the impact that it had on me, but it, it was a profound article. It was a big impact. And I will say I was been looking forward to having this opportunity to speak with you. I've been reading your work for a long time and I'm of the camp that if you're writing about it, if it's an article written by Lori Garrett, it matters and it matters a lot. And so we should all read it. And I I hope that this article continues to stick. I hope that you keep writing on this topic. I know that you get pulled in a lot of different directions, but your own personal experience obviously informs a lot of it. And clearly the way you wrote this resonated. And it resonated in a way that's important. And hopefully it stimulates you to to keep helping to drive this topic.
1: You know, it's not my goal to become the leader of a movement. That's something else, John. I just try to provide the analytical tools necessary that hopefully people latch on to I'm working now on a piece that I hope to get into the publication uh, pipeline in which I've been trying to figure out exactly how uh, it is that the Ebola epidemic currently unfolding in East uh, Democratic Republic of Congo in a region called North Kivu is, is still out of control and in fact is popping up in, a, in ways that don't make any sense. WHO and all the others on the ground cannot anticipate when and where the epidemic will be next. Um, and it shows absolutely no signs of abating. And this, despite the fact that we now have a vaccine and the vaccine really works. And that more than 75,000 people have been vaccinated. Um, you know, they unprecedented. There's never been an Ebola epidemic where we had, you know, vaccine and that scale of mobilization. We have a, a you know, fit-for-purpose WHO response. We have a, a strong Ministry of Health in Kinshasa that's really doing the job. We have an African CDC that's, you know, didn't even exist two years ago, and they're on the ground. We have. Uh, you know literally hundreds of well-trained people doing their jobs how could it be then that we're completely failing and of course the the answer turns out to be uh, a mineral uh, actually a kind of combination of minerals that are found 80% of the entire global supply is found right there in North Kivu and that mineral is in everybody's cell phones and it is the key to having cell phone transmissions uh, that would normally generate tremendous amount of heat and your battery would explode uh, such as live streaming a video. Uh, but this mineral, this constellation of minerals is used uh, to transmit signals without generating heat and that allows us to have cell phones and to a lesser degree laptops. Well. Here we are in a situation where because of this mineral coming out of the ground and used and sold by all these rival militia groups and 132 different warring groups in this relatively small regional focus, uh, it's your cell phone financing them killing each other and blocking the Ebola fight, attacking Ebola fighters, setting fire to Ebola clinics, perpetuating this epidemic it's really it's a horrible situation and you know the world is so reluctant to embrace problems like this that have multiple routes that overlap into multiple disciplines that you have you know the medical provider who's trained in medicine trying to fight ebola but you have the transportation expert trying to ford a flooded river stream and get a vehicle carrying vaccine across the river. And then you have the military experts um, saying you can't go there because the mama group there will kill you.
0: My only response to that is if, if Lori Garrett is writing it, it matters and we should read okay. it. So we will definitely be following you so we can find that. Where do people find you on social media?
1: Uh, It's Lori underscore Garrett on Twitter uh, as capital L capital G on Laurie Garrett on Twitter. My website has been hacked and is temporarily down, but when it's functioning, it's Uh And I don't really use Facebook, so I've kind of backed off from that. So
0: there's no point in going there. <laughs> I, I highly recommend your Twitter feed. It is it is riveting on a daily basis. I actually retweet and reply to a lot of the things that you put up because I find them very, very meaningful. Obviously, the article that we've been discussing today, to the BMJ's credit, they've made it, they have not put it behind a paywall. So we will have links to it. And I would really encourage anyone that has not read it, read it, share it, spend some time sitting with it and thinking on it. It's, it's an impactful piece. It's an important piece. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come and share your own personal story and to talk about the journey in creating this, the response to it. It's been a really extraordinary conversation. and I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you so much, Mark. Thank you for listening
0: to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to Mark at ExploreTheSpaceShow.com.